Okay, please turn to the Gospel of Luke if you have a Bible. Gospel of Luke, chapter 5. I'll be reading verses 17 through 26. Luke 5, verses 17 through 26. On one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no one to bring him in because of the crowd, or no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Rise and walk. But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and he went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Father, may we in the reading, in the hearing, and in the unfolding of this precious historical account in Your infallible Word, may we hear with the heart of faith. May we see with Holy Spirit created eyes and believe. To the glory of the only Savior from our sin, Jesus Christ. Amen. Try to envision for yourself the worst possible circumstances in your life. Uh, you get hit by a car and you're quadriplegic for the next 40 years. Or many, many young people, when they get married, sometimes daydream, what would I do with my spouse that I'm married and loved so much? Became paralyzed and utterly dependent upon me. Or poverty. Not, not a, we don't have poverty in America. I mean poverty like Haiti or some African village. That that were your lot in life. Or leprosy as we saw last week. 
So just pick something. And then think, what would be the greatest relief to your life? The answer in our text this morning is not to be paralyzed and then to be healed and walk. Or to be utterly poverty stricken where you're literally starving and then to find food. Or to be single and to find a mate. Or to be a leper and to be cleansed. The answer in this text is not to get worldly relief or blessing and then die and then face the one true holy God as an unforgiven person. The greatest and the most stunning part of this story this morning is that this guy walked away forgiven of his sins. Start with verse 17. On one of those days, as Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea, and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. I don't, we can't miss it. Luke is saying you've got to feel the atmosphere. The last Saturday of November 1988, my dad and I were sitting in the west end zone of the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum right before 5 p.m. when they're going to kick the football off. Number one ranked team in the country, Notre Dame, was playing the number two ranked team in the country, USC. And the tension in the air with 90,000 fans was palpable. There's going to be a clash for the national championship. That's what Luke just set up in verse 17. Now, in the Colosseum back there in 1988, it was the clash between these two teams, these disgusting cardinal jerseys and these glorious gold helmets. And 90,000 fans. You can just cut the tension in the air. And the clash that's about to happen and the tension in the air inside this house was between the two teams of the Pharisees and of Jesus, this guy from Nazareth, preacher, healer. Now, in our journey through Luke, this is the first time that the Pharisees or scri and scribes or teachers of the law are mentioned. Now, therefore, what I want to do, I want to pull back and let's not assume stuff. Okay, let's not even assume the nasty name that the word Pharisee means for a lot of people now because of the New Testament. Because we, we may miss really what's going on. And we may miss seeing ourselves here. 
See, in the first century, within Judaism, and then you want to bring it even closer into the Palestinian region, there, there were four main Jewish groups among the Jews. I mean, if you're going to join a real intimate community, as opposed to just being a general Jew who goes to synagogue. And, and they were the Pharisees, that we see here, the Sadducees, the Essenes, that, that, that real sectarian community over there by the Dead Sea, and the Zealots. So, let's just concentrate mainly here on the Pharisees, because this is what Luke brings up. Where are they, who are these people? Where do they come from? We've got to go back a few hundred years. You, you know your Bible, I hope, somewhat, right? Moses is the deliverer, and Joshua brings them into the land. A few hundred years of judges, and then Samuel, and then they get their first king, and then David, the second king of Israel, the great king. You're about 1,000 years B.C., before Christ and a few more hundred years of horrendous rule of Israel's kings and and then you got Judah because the split happened and finally as God promised his judgment comes down in the exile and pretty much the obliteration of the northern kingdom of called Israel but Judah the southern kingdom still exists and warnings are coming and ultimately and finally through Jeremiah the prophet, you need to pay attention to your God, to His Word, to His Scripture, and they don't, and they don't, and they don't. And God's judgment comes by taking Babylon and causing them to destroy His people and wipe out Jerusalem, and decimate to the ground Solomon's temple and drag away the Jews into exile. Seventy years or so, more and more Jews now are matriculating back to their homeland, to Jerusalem. And we see this at the end of the Old Testament. Now they let's rebuild the temple. We need the temple. And they did, and it's nothing like the glorious temple that God had Solomon build. But here's the thing now. It's, it's really important to understand what started to happen in these post-exile Jews. After the exile is they were getting it. The reason we were absolutely wiped out and driven away into exile, we can read it now in this, our Scripture, is because of God's judgment upon us for our neglecting His law. And so, you're now into the 400s, early 400s, and then into the 300s. And what is growing now are the beginnings of Judaism. In other words, these Jews now were much more conscious than ever before in history of their sin of neglecting God's law. And so they were now forming religiously and doing the opposite paying very close attention to the law and the religious life and the covenant they had with Yahweh. So let me read to help you out, to give a little bit of picture from the Zondervan Pictorial Encyclopedia of the Bible on what's going on in the what we call the intertestamental period. 400 years before the close of the Old Testament, about 
430 B.C. to Christ coming. Quote, During this time, detailed exposition of the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, of the law of Moses appeared in the form of innumerable and highly specific injunctions that were designed to build a hedge around the written Torah, the law, the Bible and thus to guard against any possible infringement of the Torah by ignorance or accident. Okay, stop for a second. See, what's going on? You got God's holy word. You got the Bible. You got the prophets. And particularly at the center, you have the first five books, the Torah, the law of Moses. Okay, they didn't just say, let's just pay attention to the law. What was saying, you know what? Here's the law. And we don't want to break the God's law. We want to walk by it. So let's not make the boundary where the law is. Let's really extend it outwards. So that when we start breaking, it's even before we get to the law. And so all kinds of innumerable other injunctions and safety codes were being developed in the communities. I read on in the encyclopedia, quote, in addition, the new circumstances of the exile and the post-exilic period involved matters not covered in the written Torah, the scripture. Consequently, new legislation had to be produced by analogy to and inference from that which already existed. The content of this, and here's key, the content of this Oral law continued to evolve and to grow in volume through the intertestamental period and through the New Testament period and after the New Testament period. Finally, it was written down in about 200 A.D. called the Mishnah. So what's going on? Our Oral traditions, they're passed down orally. They're not all written down in a book, like if you're a good Talmudic Jew now, part of the Talmud is the Mishnah. And all that stuff got recorded many, many years later. But the traditions were being passed down through the communities and in the teaching, orally. Okay? Now, final quote from this text. For the Pharisees, the oral law came to be revered so highly that it was said to go back to Moses himself and to have been transmitted over the centuries orally, paralleling the written law that also derived from him, Moses. Okay. This is what's going on in the intertestamental period. In about 167... You had the Maccabean Rebellion against Antiochus who desecrated the temple. And this is the first time now in hundreds of years that the Jews won their freedom again as an independent state in the world for just a short period of time. And with that, you started to have a division growing within the Jewish community in the Palestinian era before Christ of those who were more politically oriented, governmentally oriented, and the communities we just started to describe here who were, their life was much more concerned with keeping God's covenant and being faithful to it and paying attention to the Scripture and the law and were very 
religious. And so those kinds of people, historically the name is, these were the Hasidim, Jews. And out of those covenant, faithful, keeping Jews of the Hasidim grew, and we finally have a particular, one of the sects called the Pharisees. In other words, somewhat of an analogy within the Judaism that Jesus is going to come into is somewhat today, I'm just going to make a stretch, okay? It's like what are known as many of us, evangelical Christians. Now, depending on who says it, you turn on your local uh, news, it almost sounds like Pharisee sounds to Christians. Oh, the evangelicals or the fundamentalist Christians. They, they mean those Bible thumpers. They believe the book is true in a heaven and a, and a hell and, you know, that kind of person. That's okay. As opposed to another kind of a, a Christian, you know, I mean, we're all Christians, right? It's America, you know. So, you ever had an American president who was not a quote unquote Christian? Of course not. But, but, but you got this more left wing, not believing in the infallibility. Of scripture, much more politically oriented, more aristocratic type, uh, high-end society type thing. Okay, just as we have that now, that was going on in the first century. The non-political, we don't care about that. We care about God's law, and we don't want to be tainted by the world. Pharisees, or the more politically oriented. Not like the Pharisees. I mean, they believe God's law and all in, in the Scripture, but high-end, aristocratic Sadducees. Another community. Now, here's the big question. Who are these people? Okay, we open up our text and he says there's Pharisees there and teachers of the law, or which is equivalent to scribes. I mean, who are they? What I mean, think about 50 years before this. Okay, most of these guys didn't exist. Okay, did they come out of the womb with a Pharisaic hat on? I mean, what? How did they get to be a Pharisee? What does that mean? Is Bill or Sam or Judah a Pharisee or the butcher and the baker and the candlestick maker? Who's a Pharisee? You ask the question. Who's an evangelical Christian today? Is a lawyer, or, or a doctor, or a house painter, or a retail worker, or a car salesman, or a union worker, are they, are they evangelical Christians? Yes, they come from all those groups. Oh, it's the same at this period of time. They come from all those groups. Let me read again to help us with this, to get a feel. Okay, who are these people? What does it mean to be a Pharisee? Here in the first century, the encyclopedia says, quote, By way of contrast with the Sadducees, who were drawn almost exclusively from the aristocracy, the Pharisees, that is, this religious community, largely were members of the middle class. They tended to be the businessmen, the merchants, and the tradesmen of their day. These were men earnestly concerned with following after the law and who had thus 
separated themselves from the great mass of the populace. The so-called people of the land. That's the mass. That's Peter, and that's James, and that's John. They're Jews, and they go to synagogue, and they believe the law. But the Pharisee says, no, within that we're even separated from the mass of the populace. And they did this how? By their strict adherence to the minutiae of the legal tradition. The average Pharisee had no formal education in the interpretation of Scripture or the law. And accordingly, though, they had recourse to the professional scholar. That's who the scribes are. And when you read the word scribes, and like is in our text, called scribes, and also in our text, he refers to them as teachers of the law. Those are your professionals, your professors, your preachers, your professional trained teachers, who the vast majority of those were part of that particular community called the Pharisees. That was their belief system. But most Pharisees, by definition, just like most evangelicals, by definition, are not professional pastors and teachers or seminary professors. They're laymen. You're normal everyday people who are in these communities. So let me pick up, quote, the Pharisees, like other separatist groups, and let me just stop for a second. That's what the word Pharisee means, to separate from. To separate from the Greek cultural influence called Hellenism, which, which because Alexander the Great, a couple hundred years before, just brought it to the whole Western world, including the Jews. And so it's just, and they saw that as a taint and, and secularism and just the populace. They're Pharisees, they're separate, they're fundamentalist. We have those within our, in our own American Christian culture called fundamentalists which most of you, if not all of you, are not one of them. You're not that far pulled apart. Continue quote. Admission into these communities was strictly regulated. A candidate who wanted to get in and become a Pharisee must first agree to take upon himself obedience to all the detailed legislation of the Pharisaic tradition involving tithing and especially ceremonial and dietary purity. He then entered a period of probation during which he was carefully observed with respect to his vow of obedience. And then successful completion of this probation entitled that candidate to full membership in the community. Each community of the Pharisees was organized under the leadership of a scribe who served as a professional authority in the interpretation of the law. And probably they had other officers, like churches do now, as well. The communities not only provided opportunity for mutual scrutiny and mutual encouragement, but also had regularly scheduled meetings for worship, usually on the eve of the Sabbath, and to study the Torah and have a communal meal and to also fellowship and take part together. 
So, these communities exist within first century Palestine. When you say Pharisees, they're not all these professional ministers and all that kind of, not at all. They're your normal everyday people who are like a fundamentalist Christian. Okay? They belong to these communities. They're, they're radically religious. The influence of the Pharisees in their religion, in their thinking, was large over the non-Pharisees in the population. Particularly through their arm, the local synagogue where their influence was. So that those who were not Pharisees, often the vast majority imbibed and believed most of their understanding of Judaism. Even though they never officially became a member or joined the community. Now, here's the key to understand what's going on in the New Testament. The main distinction of the Pharisees as opposed to the other Jews and other groups is not that the Pharisees really loved the Scripture, really loved the law of Moses, and the other groups didn't. That's not the distinction. The distinction is their particular emphasis on the oral tradition along with Moses. The basic issue was where they put the oral traditions that have been accumulating for hundreds of years. Rabbi so and so said, Rabbi this said, you deal with this written law of Moses and then you've got tons of oral memorized traditions on how to keep that law. Moses says keep holy the Sabbath. Kind of simple. There's a couple little written scriptural things about that. That's about it. The Pharisees, with the oral traditions being passed down, have 800 different safeguards on how to do the couple little written things. Okay? And you just do that with law. After law. That's the distinction between the Pharisees and the other groups. Look, we have this tradition within Christianity. If you go back to the 1950s with some Pentecostal groups, it's not written in Scripture, but it certainly is. You go to, you, are you a Christian? You went to a movie? You danced? You chewed gum and you wore that clothing? You knew that. <laughs> I don't know. Your Christian card's probably torn up. This stuff happens in religion all the time. The oral tradition was all the explanatory added stuff. Now, in a sense, much like what happened in the Christian tradition with the Roman church. It's the big debate 500 years ago. There was so much accumulated tradition and theology in practice that was not Scripture, but interpretation of Scripture, and then it has been exalted in the Roman communion on a par with Scripture. That's the same with the Pharisees and the oral tradition. Now, Josephus, he's not a Christian, okay? He's a Jewish 
Roman historian doing the Jewish history in the first century. And what he says about what's going on is this, that, quote, it is exactly this obsession with regulations handed down by former generations and not recorded in the law of Moses that constituted the breach between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Alright, gave you enough? Too much, huh? That's what's going on in the New Testament when you keep running across the Pharisees and Jesus is running across them. And you start to hear the scrupulous concern for the minutiae of this oral tradition. Let me get two quotes. This is what Jesus is referring to when he says, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your traditions? He means their oral traditions. Or, in another place, where he says, And so, dear Pharisee, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the Scripture. The Word of God. Okay. There's your backdrop. So, here we are in our text in a house. It's in Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. Mark lets us know that. We don't know. It might be Peter's house. I don't know. It might be Jesus' house. I don't know. But they're in a house and the tension is thick. Sitting there are these type of Jews. Oral, tradition-keeping Jews. The separatist movement. And they're not there. Because they're excited to hear this new Galilean preacher. They are there as the investigating committee seeking to find some heresy with this young preacher. That's why Luke says Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there and they came from every village of Galilee and Judea. And even from Jerusalem. That's the setting. And Jesus is teaching. And this would be obnoxious, so don't do it here. But if someone were up in that attic now, trying to get through that ceiling, and start to dig, and you're in the front row, and Tony starts to get some of this stuff on his head, this is what happened. Because there's four guys, Mark lets us know there's four of them, They were carrying their friend or their family member or both. We don't know. They love their crippled, paralytic friend. And they tried to get in. But this house with Jesus there, it was jammed, packed. You just, there's no room. They could not even get through the door. There's no room. They wouldn't let them. And so in that day, these houses, many of them had stairways, part of the house that led right on up to a flat roof. And that's where they carried their friend. And they started to dig away. Now, these roofs, this is what it most likely consisted of. You have these walls, probably stone. And then on that you had timber. Laid, like we have joists, a few feet apart. And then crossways would be sticks. 
And then packed on that would be all kinds of stubble and all kinds of other growth. Okay, boom. And then on that, about a foot of dirt. Yeah, when it rained and in the spring, grass would even grow on the roof. This is what these guys dug through in order to let down their friend, the paralytic, with a rope, plop right in front of Jesus. And then he says, And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. That's startling. Just think if you're one of his buddies up on the roof. You got him down there. And then the other guy's back here and he says, What did he say? What happened? He said his sins were forgiven. I don't think that was what they were thinking when they dug the hole. He's, we want him healed. We heard all these stories of healing. Jesus' words were deliberate and they were calculated to create a dilemma for these Pharisees and the professional Pharisees, preachers, teachers of the law. He knows that they're there. Jam-packed in there with all these other people. And they're there to try to catch him in some heresy. So Jesus deliberately gives them what they think they want. When he says, your sins are forgiven. He knows exactly what he's doing. That was a deliberate, provocative statement. And verse 21 says, And the scribes, the professional Pharisees there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Saying, Who can forgive sins but God alone? Blasphemy is a very serious charge. It is the charge that will eventually convict Jesus and get Him executed. Now, at its core, blasphemy means to be speaking, saying willingly and consciously something to defile God or the name of God. It is an abusive speech or action against God. Now, in the first century here, blasphemy included speaking badly of the Torah, of the Bible. Blasphemy included just plain old idolatry. You act that way, you have blasphemed the fellow Jew. Blasphemy, of course, included purposely speaking against the name of the God of Israel. Yahweh. 
Okay, got it. So now watch. These leaders sitting there in the house just claimed that that's what Jesus did when He said, Your sins are forgiven. He blasphemed. They're saying, this is what they have to be meaning. He is claiming for Himself the divine prerogative to forgive sins, meaning against God. And that belongs to God only. That's what they said there. Only God can forgive sins. This guy, with his mouth and his action, is somehow claiming that authority of God to be equal with God. And to do that is an assault on the holy name. It's blasphemy. Let's stop. Let's set this confrontation aside for a moment. Just to look at it from another perspective for a minute. From the paralytic's viewpoint. didn't care anything about all this stuff. He's lying there. I don't know, 150, 200 people are jammed in, I don't, in front of all these people and in front of the Jesus preacher guy from Nazareth. He can't move. Obviously, his main need is to get healed of his paralysis. But instead, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you. Now, to heal this guy's body will make the rest of his time here on earth more comfortable than it would be otherwise. But without soul healing, he's still going, like all of us, to eventually die and stand before the one pure, sinless, holy, just God. His main need was not physical healing. His main need, like all of ours, is the forgiveness of our offense toward our Creator. Now, it's so easy for us, even religious people, to think how hard-hearted Jesus is. Just picture it in our day. Don't you feel for Him? Not just His physical problem there, but just think about what His emotional life must be like. There are no wheelchairs. He doesn't own one. Especially electric ones. And there are no ramps. He is radically and utterly dependent on others to go to the bathroom. For years, He cannot work. What is He going to offer? He's a beggar. How that must just decimate the emotional makeup of this man. Come on. What he needs is inner emotional healing or a pep talk or spiritual self-esteem, Jesus. And Jesus says to him, Sir, your badness your evil, your sins 
in our day and age. There's so many crazy Christian so-called theologies. That there, the forgiveness of sins is not a nice little add-on to the abundant Christian life. If the Bible's message is correct about inevitable death and inevitable judgment before the one true and perfectly just holy God, then the forgiveness of sins is the main need of every human being. Period. People do not primarily need Get the words clearly, okay? I'm speaking on purpose clearly. They do not primarily need their marriage fixed. They do not primarily need an economic boost or state medical care. But primarily, every sinner needs to actually have God Forgive their sins. Every other need, and oh, do we have billions of them. Every other need, and they're welcomed, but they are all, in comparison, secondary and temporary. As Jesus said elsewhere, For what will it profit a man if I heal your paralysis but you lose your soul? Okay, okay, all right. Kind of like reread that. But you know, what is it going to profit you to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? See, one lesson of this text is that many times, like this guy, it is our pain, it is our suffering, that is that grace that brings us to be plopped before Jesus and to receive something we never even dreamed about. The forgiveness of our sins. This man would not have been in front of the Savior that day if it were not for his paralysis and the faith and the love of his friends. But he was there. And I think now he can say along with the psalmist, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. Let's go back then to the other reason that Jesus pronounced forgiveness the way He did and in the order He did this day. And that was in order to confront these fundamentalist Jews, these Pharisees and their teachers with the implications of the physical healing that He was going to perform. Jesus' logic is right there in verses 22 and 23. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, He answered their thoughts. Why do you question in your hearts? 
Here's his logic. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you. Or to say, rise up and walk. See, okay, I think this is what's going on. The, the Pharisees, there's, there's a part of them, like you and me, that, that they have to be thinking, there's this sense in which it's much easier to say, your sins are forgiven you. You can't verify it. You can't prove that it's not true. But to say, as a so-called healing guy, rise up and walk, we're going to watch. <laughs> and if he doesn't rise up and walk, I mean, his spinal cord or something has been severed. It's verifiable. It's objectively verifiable. Got that? So, Jesus says, quote, but in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he did. This is stunning. And do you see the dilemma that Jesus put these Pharisees in. This, this is what he did. With the words he spoke, this is what he did. If Jesus were speaking blasphemy, when he took it upon himself to forgive this guy's sins against the God of Israel, then how are the Pharisees going to explain God giving him the power to heal this guy from paralysis? See, they're caught. Now, I know. What should go through the back of your mind is, I know how they did it. And exactly. They had to go that way. They had to eventually say, Satan gave him the power. They have to. But deep down, many of them know the problem with that. That's what Jesus' words mean to them. Which is easier to say. Tell you, from your perspective, you know it's a lot easier for just to declare somehow God's forgiven your sins to this guy. But to say, rise up and walk from paralysis, you know that's not easy. And to prove to you that I have the authority to forgive sins. Get up and go home. And he does. It was the power of God in the visible realm of the healing of paralysis that established Jesus' authority in the invisible realm to forgive the sins of people. Now, we humans think, whoa! And Jesus implied that from our perspective. That's the hard thing to get this guy to get up and walk by your word. But from God's perspective... The real hard thing is to forgive the sins of this guy because that will take the sacrificial death of his son. Let this stunning declaration of Jesus sink in. See, the Pharisees understanding who can forgive sins but God alone is right. Jesus didn't challenge it. It's true. 
Nobody can forgive the offenses against their Creator except the one who has been offended. See, if you hurt me, sin against me, offend me, and you come up to me and, and ask, Joe, will you please forgive me? I have the right and I have the authority and I have the ability to extend to you forgiveness for that offense against me. But if down the street over here you decide to take a stick to whack that nice little lady upside the head cut open her head, knock her to the ground, and steal her purse, and you keep running down here, and you run into me, and you say, Pastor Joe, I just sinned against that woman over here. This is what I did. Will you forgive me? Huh? What you, you, didn't, you didn't do that to me. What are you asking me for? I don't have the right to forgive you. You didn't sin against me. I've had people do this. You know, I, I have people confess all kinds of these of sins, and they said, "Will you forgive me?" And I said, "You didn't sin against me. I don't. I don't. I don't you, you fall, I don't have the right." In, in, oh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't go there. But, but Christian, yeah, they will go there. Christian groups do not have the right. When, when, when a mom and a dad and a brother and a sister one day wake up and everything's happy and fine, and by the end of that day, their son is dead because of the vicious murder of some nuthead. Christian communities don't have the right to come up and say, we forgive Bobby for killing these guys' kid and brother and sister. You don't. Okay. But Jesus just stood there. This guy bleeds. And says, your sins. And He means here, against God. He means that all sin, you do sin against other human beings. We need forgiveness from them. But every sin against a human being is before that and prior to that and at its core, an offense against the Creator who created those other people in the image of Himself. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For Jesus to stand above that paralytic and declare your sins are forgiven, it must mean that His sins somehow were directed against Jesus of Nazareth. And that's only possible if He were God. That's what's happening. Jesus did not correct the Pharisees when He found out they're thinking in their mind, this guy blasphemies. No one can forgive these sins like that except for God Himself. He didn't say, no, 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 no. You misunderstood. I just meant to say that, you know, God, the God of Israel, we can all say this, He somehow is extending forgiveness to this guy, or like He does to all of us. I can show you text in Scripture. He did not defend His statement that way. But instead, He confirmed His reasoning 
by saying, rise up and walk. That's what was happening. It was utterly profound. (laughs) He says, this is the proof that the Son of Man has the authority in Himself to forgive sins. Now, briefly, quickly. Son of Man, what He means is Daniel 7. I'm going to quote it. 500 years before this, the prophet Daniel had a vision. He says, quote, I saw in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. This is the Messiah. This is Jesus. That's what Jesus means by referring to Himself as the Son of Man. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. And to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is declaring by His statement, I am that one. And thus, I have authority as God to forgive sins. It's stunning. Just just put Luke's narrative together. Don't assume anything. Pretend it's the first time you ever knew anything about Jesus. You're Theophilus. Luke has been constructing what it just culminated here from the very beginning. The angel came. And this authority that this true human being had as a man, as he says here, and on earth the authority to forgive began in the womb of Mary. That authority is the one he had as that baby who grew and developed and matured and learned in his human nature and lived till 15 years old and 23. And now in his ministry at 33, 34, 35 years old has lived sinlessly in humanity. This is the authority of this Son of Man who will say in John chapter 8, verse 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? His authority lay in His statement, nobody kills me. Or nobody takes my life, but I lay it down of my own authority. His authority lay in Mark 10.45. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but He came to serve and to lay down His life for many. 
His authority is what He gave to His Apostle Paul later to say after His death in His resurrection in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For our sake, Jesus was made to be sin for us. That is, the One who Himself knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. His authority continues this very morning and forever in His eternal, unending high priesthood as Hebrews chapter 7 puts it. But this Jesus holds His priesthood permanently because He continues now in the resurrection forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. So whoever any person is, that day in that house or today on planet earth, no matter how grievous and how disgusting and how deep and how dark their sins are. Burglary, thievery, adultery, gossip, lying, sexual perversion, no matter how deep, Jesus can save. As the Hebrew writer says, to the uttermost. Meaning, thoroughly, completely, this is the Gospel. This is the good news of the coming of the Son of Man. That's why we should rejoice along with the paralytic that day who went off glorifying God. That's why we should rejoice with the Apostle Paul who said it so concisely. For I am not ashamed of the Gospel. Because in it, in the news, the full news, the meaning of salvation, why He died on a cross, why He suffered wrath, for me, a disgusting, undeserving sinner. Paul says, as a former Pharisee, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel because it is the power of God for salvation from my sin, Paul says. And to me and to everyone who, like the paralytic and his friends, believes. Because that's the other point of the text. See, the question is, who are these people being saved by the 
And Luke, in our text, draws a very sharp contrast between these five guys, four friends and the paralytic, and this investigating community of the Pharisees. The Pharisees had no sense of their desperate spiritual paralysis that they need healing from. But the four men and their friend, they came to Jesus. Desperate. So desperate they went to desperate measures to get their friend before Him. Both groups were there. Both groups are in ten thousands of churches throughout this planet this morning. They're in all these churches. Both groups are there. The Pharisees walked away more hardened. These five men went away rejoicing. Let's be the rejoicing type as we sing and as we live and as we repent and as we love to the glory of this great healer of the body and of the soul. Let's pray. So Lord Jesus, work this text in us. Work these truths in your people. We are desperate. May we never wake up this week in any of these seven days that lay ahead not realizing our paralysis and our need and our utter dependence upon the work of Your Spirit, the work of Your Word, repentance and fellowship and communion and rejoicing in the power of God, which is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen.